You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church DC, including our location and gathering times, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com slash DC. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart, and it's a continuation of a series entitled Survival Skills. Well, I worked for my dad one summer in Beeville, Texas, uh, while I was in high school, and it was, uh, it was cowboy work. It was mending fences and digging ditches and herding the cattle that I may or may not have accidentally let out on the freeway, stuff like that. And if you're not familiar with South Texas, it easily gets up over 100 degrees. And so this was real character-building kind of work, like the kind of work that you never want to have to do again, you know? Uh, but I remember when I was out there, one day my dad came to me and he was like, hey, Ben, do you see that huge pile of brush out back? And I was like, yeah, it's like taller than the house. Yes, I see it. And he was like, yeah, I want you to burn it down. And I was like, dream come true. <laughs> it is wired deep into the heart of a young man to want to burn things. And you've just offered me the pinnacle, the Mount Everest of lighting things on fire. This is incredible. But at that moment, I realized, you know, I was young. Like, the only fire I'd really started was, like, in a barbecue pit, you know? And I'm like, all right, it's kind of like that. Use a little bit of lighter fluid and a match, and you're golden. But this is a huge pile, so I'll use a couple gallons of gasoline. So I did that. And then I grabbed a road flare that I had found in the garage and just kind of lobbed it gently onto the gasoline-soaked fire. And uh, what happened next was, was unexpected. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the blast from the flames was so strong that it uh, threw me physically off my feet. And it was wild because I sat up instantly covered in ash. And I was like, wow, that was very sudden. And, <laughs> and then surrounded by flames that were not content to stay on the brush pile where they were supposed to be. They were now racing along the grass towards the house. And so I had to run and kind of grab a hose and just go to work and, and did manage to put the fire out before it got to the house, but not without some singed fingers and some scorched earth and a very stressed out dad. <laughs> now, why mention that? Uh, for this reason, uh, fire is a gift. Fire is a powerful force that's a gift for us that when it's put in its proper boundaries, you cage it in with with brick and mortar and steel, uh, it can bring warmth and life into a home. Fire can keep you alive. Right? Taken outside of those boundaries, it can be a dangerous thing. It can hurt you, hurt people you love. It can burn your house down. And it's a volatile thing to have something as powerful as fire in the hands of a youth, right? And you go, why mention that? Because we've been in the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs is written primarily for young people. And it says later that anyone can gain wisdom, but it's primarily written for the young person that's right on the stage of owning their own life. I'm out of my parents' house. I'm moving into being the owner of my own decisions. And it's written to young people on the moment they're launching onto their own. And so the book warns you several times, and it's through a father speaking to a son. It warns you one of the most powerful forces you are going to encounter and control is the longing for sexual fulfillment. And that desire is not wrong. Yet there's a way to handle that that can promote life. Or there's a way to handle your sexuality that can damage and destroy your life. And so we need wisdom. And wisdom, we've talked about this, is an understanding of how the world works and then the skill to work within it successfully. 
And so in this book, the dad is talking to all different parts of the son's life, and he comes into this section. He says, young man, you're standing at a crossroads. And all through the book, he's talked to this young man and said, there's two primary voices calling to you. There's the voice of wisdom that says, humble yourself. Realize you don't know everything, but humble yourself to wise voices. Listen to God, learn from him, walk according to his path, and you'll flourish. But then there's also a voice of folly that says, you do you. You don't do what works for you. Don't think about other people. Don't think about God. And don't think about consequences. You just do whatever feels good for you. And those two paths are out there. And each path has voices championing those messages. On the path of wisdom, it's the parents and lady wisdom. Wisdom personified as a woman who sets a table and says, sit and learn from me. And on the path of folly, there's two voices as well. There's the bros who tell him, just chase after money, sex, and power, and you do you, and don't worry about other people. And then there's Lady Folly, who's presented as a seductress, and she's going to call to him. And in the first seven chapters of the book, four chapters, the dad warns the son about Lady Folly and the seductress. And why does he do it four times out of seven chapters? Because that's roughly the amount of thoughts a young man has about sex, just uh, scientifically. That it's a, it's a real powerful force, our desire for sexual fulfillment. And he's looking at this young man and saying, hey, you need wisdom in this area. This can hurt you. Now, as I say that, let me clarify this. He's going to talk about it, and he's going to warn the son about the seductress. And let me just say this on the outset. He's not saying, well, women are all trouble, or women are going to lead you astray, son. You'll see later in the text that the woman is now on this street corner, this street corner, and says she's on every street corner. And you realize he's not talking about a particular woman or even women. He's talking about a mentality. Like wisdom was personified as a woman. Listen to her voice and follow her. So there's a seductive mindset a way of thinking about sensuality that's destructive. So I want to clarify that. As he's warning against this woman, it's not so much about women, it's about a mentality that the son's going to be tempted to embrace. And as he warns him about that, he's going to give him some guidance. He's going to show them the problem. Then he's going to show them the sales pitch of sensuality. And then he's going to show you the path's end where it leads and then the proper response. And so that's where we're going. He's going to show them the problem, the sales pitch, the path's end, and the proper response. Now, let me say this as well. When you open up a subject like sex, you realize I can't cover every aspect of that. And so some of you will go, man, you left a lot of questions on the table. And I'll say, exactly. And that's why church meets every week. So you can pick up different topics. And over the course of the years, we'll just do this a whole lot and it'll be amazing. So anyway, uh, if we don't hit your subject or issue, I apologize, but we'll get into what this text has for us. And so the first part, it presents the problem of the sensual mindset. And the problem you see in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, most clearly he says, he's encouraging the son to embrace the words of wisdom. And he says, if you do it in verse 16, so you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. And so the problem is he lays it out. He says, you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman or adulteress. It's literally the words, the strange woman and the outsider, or the strange woman or the foreigner. And he doesn't mean foreigner like uh, ethnically. This isn't racist. Uh, people in Israel married people from different cultures. Ruth was a Moabitess. Moses married a Midianite woman. The boundary wasn't ethnicity. It's talking about there's an allegiance to community, and this woman's literally called out of bounds, outside the boundary. 
As we enter into community together, there's, there's things we say we're going to do for each other to be part of the community. I agree to drive reasonably within the speed limit, right? As my commitment to you as a part of our country. And if I continually violate that, you take my license away and I just have to ride a little scooter. Something like that, right? There, these are the commitments we wait, make to follow certain boundaries. And he calls this woman out of bounds. He says, she's making some decisions that aren't going to be good for you to enter into, son. She's out of bounds for you, is what he's trying to say by calling her these particular words. And then he shows you why she's out of bounds. The problem's in verse 17. She forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. The problem is sexuality outside the boundaries of committed relationship. That's the problem the Bible presents. Now, to be clear about that, we got to show you the ideal standard she's deviated from. And the language here is important as it's talking about the context in which sex is meant to be enjoyed. It says the covenant before God and the companion of her youth. A covenant is a solemn agreement. And it's a social agreement. You make it in front of people. I promise and I swear to do certain things for you, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. I covenant to be there for you, to put your well-being over even my needs. And he says it's a covenant made not just to another person, but before God. It's a spiritual commitment and a social commitment. I'm looking at somebody and say, spiritually before God, I promise to love all of you and care for you. And socially before others, I promise to draw you near and put your needs above my own. That's the biblical idea that's presented as a covenant. It's a binding together. It's so different than a consumer mentality. A consumer mentality says... I, as a consumer, have a relationship with a vendor, and I might get along with a particular vendor, but the basis of our relationship is your product meets my needs. And paramount in this relationship is my needs. So if your product does not meet my needs, I'm out to another vendor. And so our relationship's always a bit fragile because what's paramount in it is my needs. And when my needs are met, I stay. When they're not met or I can get an upgrade, I'm out. That's a consumer mentality. Do you see that? A covenant mentality is said, I am yours for better or for worse in sickness and in health. I'm not going anywhere. Now, if only one person swears to that, you got a recipe for exploitation. When both swear to that, it's holy. It's amazing. That's saying, I'm giving you all of me and I want all of you. And what's beautiful about that is he says, the idea is to make that kind of covenant with the companion of your youth. And I love that he uses that word companion. It's the Hebrew word haloop. That word literally means confidant. It means best friend. That back then, maybe marriage was because of uh, political expediency or something like that. But within the biblical pictures, no, you marry the person that's your best friend. This was different than a lot of the culture. And yet the Bible is extolling. You find someone that you want to share your heart with them. And so the picture is that I am getting towards someone and saying, I want to commit to you spiritually, I want to commit to you socially, and I want to commit to you emotionally. I care about your thoughts, I care about your heart, I care about all of you. And then sex becomes the ultimate consummation of that. That I've bound myself to you socially, I've bound myself to you spiritually, I've bound myself to you emotionally, and now I bind myself to you sexually. It is a fully integrated life. It's a life of integrity that I'm giving you all of me and you're giving me all in return. It's, it's really, if you want to think of it a certain way, like a sacrament. A sacrament in, in church world is a physical symbol that shows an inward 
response. Like I get physically baptized in water to show my association with God. It's a physical symbol to show an inward change. The sexual act within a covenant relationship is literally, I have given my whole life to you. And now as a symbol of that, I give even my whole body to you, right? That all of me comes towards you. In this context of safety, full radical donation for the delight of us both. Do you see that? And the consumer mentality says, I will take from you what's good for my needs. And I don't want the parts that don't benefit me. And if at any point this transaction's not good for me, I'm out. Do you see that? And the great problem in this first text is she takes this sacrament and makes it a supply. She takes something beautiful and she cheapens it. That, that's the issue with the Bible. Now, let me clarify this. I know that you're like, is he promoting sex only within marriage? Does this guy know what town he lives in? Does he know what year this is? Like, I know who I'm talking to, right? Like, it's not like, what is this guy saying? Like, I understand some people go, dude, this sounds like repressive Christianity, like you're trying to put us back in chains and kind of tie our sexuality back down. But let me just say this before we move on. The sexual ethic of the Bible is not a repressive one. I don't know if you caught at the end of the text, he tells the man to enjoy the breasts of his wife and be ravished by her love. So let me just point out that that is not talking about the benefits of procreation to further the species, right? Um, <laughs> the Bible presents a view of sex that would make even DC residents blush. You know, the Bible's not this puritanical book. It's not, I mean, think about the first chapter of the book. What's happening in the first chapter? It's three people, God, a naked guy singing to a naked girl. That's, that, that's from the jump. And it gets crazier from there by Song of Solomon. He's like, I'm gonna climb my tree and grab its stalks. And you're like, whoa, uh, it gets real. Crazy to teach that one. So uh, we'll get there when I'm ready emotionally. But the Bible does not present a repressive sexuality. It presents a sexuality that's fun. Be ravished by her love. Be intoxicated by her love. I love that mentality because I believe the Bible's the literal word of God and I want to take those verses seriously as a man and I, I want to enjoy my wife that way and uh, for the glory of God. I mean, amen and hallelujah. And, um, and here's the crazy thing that's beautiful about it. It's an integrated life. My best friend and my sexual playmate are the same people. That's great. That's a good idea. And here's what's crazy is even in the world we live in today, every, like people want that. We really want that. It's interesting. Donna Fritas, who's a research professor at Notre Dame, did a 10-year nationwide research project on sexuality on college campuses. And as she was reporting the results, she said 100% of the young people that she interviewed said, the people on my campus are too casual about sex. Or no, they said they're casual about sex. Everyone's casual about sex. It's a very casual thing to do. But then one third of them, 36%, said my peers are too casual about sex. Do you hear that? That 100% say it's a very casual thing to have sex with this person or that, but fully one-third said, I think it's too casual, though. I think we're being too cavalier with something really powerful. And so as she interviewed young people about sort of the hooking up culture, let's, let's have a sexual encounter devoid or separated from an emotional or a social encounter, she said that 41% indicated it made them profoundly unhappy, disrespected, sad, or feeling abused. 
So think about that. 41% of the people said about hooking up, they participated actively, but said, at the end of it, I walked away feeling unhappy or disrespected. The highest praise it garnered, 59%, the highest praise was the word fine. It's fine. She said, it was amazing in my study. Nobody said it's awesome. Nobody said it's amazing. Nobody said I love it. She said the highest praise it got was it's fine. And she said, but when I started to interview young people about what you want, she said, you know what was fascinating? What I heard over and over again is what people wanted was to talk, was to visit. And she was like, it was the craziest thing. Young people today in a sexually liberated culture, like, what do you want? She said, what they would say is like, I want to have a picnic and share my thoughts and have someone listen to my thoughts and care about what I think and hear about what I feel. And not just women saying that, women and men saying, I want a deep communion. Yes, I want a communion physically, but also emotionally and mentally. I want someone who wants all of me. And we're physically built that way. I mean, we've talked about this in here before, that the, the way the body is wired is that sex releases dopamine, which is that happy chemical that says, whatever you just did, do it again. Uh, but it also releases oxytocin, the hormone that promotes bonding at a social and emotional level. It's, it's the same hormone released when a mom nurses a baby. It's meant to promote bonding, that the way we're physically wired is that the physical act of sex is meant to promote and reinforce that emotional connection we made when we had covenanted to love you, that we're wired for an integrated life. And the tragedy of this mentality, this dad is warning the son about is, don't separate those two. The safest place for your sexuality is in the place of commitment of you know that person loves you. You know they're not gonna leave you. You don't have to worry about, is, my, is their staying contingent upon my performance? Will they get bored of me and upgrade? No, they love me, they're with me. Sex isn't a tool I use to keep the relationship going. It's a privilege I enjoy because we swore to love one another until death do we part. Do you see it? So if we hear that and we say, well, all of us want that, then why is there such a robust way of doing sexuality other ways. It's because it has a strong sales pitch. And it's interesting, the dad talks about this a lot in the text and in verse or chapter seven, it's interesting, he gives the sales pitch of the sensual mentality that's being sold to all of us. And the dad presents it to his son in sort of a parable or a story. In chapter seven, verse six, he says, at the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice and I've seen among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. He said, I saw a bunch of dudes kicking around the streets, and one of them looked particularly gullible. In verse 8, he says, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road near her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. He's saying, I have a boy here who's innocent, naive, gullible, a young person who's naive, and they're wandering into a dangerous place. They're wandering into a place where they may not know all the rules, and then there's a meetup. And it says, behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. That's what I mean. It's not some lady saying, son, sensuality is gonna come at you from every angle, which it does, am I right? It does when you're not even looking for it. I remember for me, I don't know about you, I was uh, introduced to pornography at a very young age. And I realized this is not something I want in my life. And I began to try to, to push out some of that because I didn't like how it made me feel. And once you try to push against that current, you realize how strong it is. I mean, sex is used to sell everything. I remember watching an Uncle Ben's Rice commercial. 
And they were using sex to promote Uncle Ben's rice. She's like, I'm making some rice. And I was like, Uncle Ben? No, not Uncle Ben. At every street corner, she's lies in wait. She sees it. You're never going to see Uncle Ben the same. I don't. It's been hard for me. She seizes him and kisses him with a bold face. She says to him, you don't have to go looking for it anymore. It's like, she's coming for you, son. That sensual impulse is strong within you, son. You're not going to, it's going to come for you. And then she has a speech and we'll summarize it, but there's basically three pieces. One is an entitlement piece. She says in verse 14, I've offered sacrifices today. I paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. I found you. What she's saying is back then you would offer a sacrifice of meat to the gods and then you would eat the meat. You didn't have a fridge to keep it. You had to eat it there. And so she's kind of giving him an excuse. She's like, I got all this food in my house. Why don't you just come upstairs? Why don't you just come in? I was looking for you. You're the one I'm looking for. Do you see the repetition of you? you, you. It's just for you, just for you, just for me. And there's a bit of entitlement there. You've had a long day. It's a crazy world. Get in here. Let's come over. Just stay a little longer. Baby is cold outside. It's that kind of mentality. You see it? And then she begins to entice. There's entitlement. You deserve a break today. And then there's enticement. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egypt. It's comfortable. It's exotic. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. It's not just sight, but it smells. All three of those perfumes are in Song of Solomon, all connected with sex. There's a sophistication to it. And it'll be satisfying. Let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. This will be life enhancing for you. It'll be, it'll be good. And then she provides the escape plan. My husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. She said, he's far away. He took a lot of money, which means he's got a lot of business to do. He'll be gone for at least two weeks. And so let's take our fill of love. We can have this connection without any consequence. You won't, you won't take any damage by saying yes to me, is what she's saying. And then it says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And then here's where the dad changes the metaphor. He says, at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Ox is a big animal. It's a powerful animal. If it don't want to go, it's not going to go. But you trick its mind. This will be good. It, it, you're convinced this is good. And then you're led and you don't even realize it's a slaughter. Or the stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. And as a bird rushes into a snare... He doesn't know it'll cost him his life. He says, you're like a powerful deer, son, like a stag running through the forest. But once you're caught, if you get caught up in this, son, not, you're going to take damage. Choices are linked with consequences. And that was, if you remember, when we talked about the essence of being foolish, foolishness is trying to decouple choices from consequences. And what he's saying here is, son, don't do that. When you're in the midst of being turned on sensually, you don't think about the consequences. I don't want to think about tomorrow. He said, but son, you have to because these choices have consequences. And the consequence, son, is like being stabbed in the liver. It's like getting hit in your place of uh, vitality. It'll cost you. So son, listen to me. Be attentive to my words. Let your heart not turn to her ways. Don't stray into her paths. Many a victim she's laid low. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, that is the grave, going down to the chambers of death, saying, son, a lot of people fall for this. Don't get into it. 
And so we get back to chapter five and verse seven. He says, son, listen to me. Don't depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labor goes to the house of the foreigner. He says, the path's end, son, is it will cost you more than you wanna pay. That's what's at the end of this line. So see all the way to the end of this road, son. If you start down this path, look at where it leads. Because in the moment, it won't tell you about that part. It'll just tell you about the luxuries of Egypt. It won't show you that you're in a slaughterhouse. And so we can apply this in a couple different areas. Obviously, a lot of it here is talking about adultery, which is prevalent in our culture. Some statistics put it at 24% of marriages, one partner will commit adultery. That's one out of four. That's pretty scary to think about. It's pretty damaging to think about. And that will cost you. It's interesting. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Chris Rock has his latest comedy special on Netflix, and it's not all that funny. I mean, he's talking about uh, the dissolution of his marriage. And as he talks about it, he says, I got to a point where I started to believe the entitlement. He said, I would think things like, I'm Chris Rock, so I'm above the rules. Rules don't apply to me. I get to do this. I've worked hard. I've been successful. I get access to the groupies. And he's just saying, I started to believe into that and I believed in the enticement. And he said, as I started to live that party rock lifestyle, he said, I lost my wife. And he entitled the series Tambourine because he makes a joke at the beginning about old bands where the person would play the tambourine. And he was like, you're just the backup guy when you play the tambourine. And if you back it up with a tambourine, you don't play it like this. Like you work it with your hip, like you get into it. And then he builds this whole metaphor of that's marriage. Marriage is about celebrating the other, putting their needs before your own. You play the tambourine while they wail, right? And he said, I should have done that. He said, I should have done that for my wife and I didn't. And then he said something really interesting as I studied this text. He says, you know what, you know what caught me? He said, I wanted the strange. That's what he said. I wanted the stranger. He said, I wanted the other. I wanted the exotic. He said, but when I went down that road, what happened was my wife became the stranger. She became the thing I could no longer get. And I traded the better for the worse. And it was fascinating. And I'm grateful for it for his vulnerability for all of us to say, hey, don't go down the path I've chosen. Now, is his life doomed? No. Is there redemption? There's redemption for all of us. There's no shame in this house today. All of us come in with unclean hands and God has a message of hope for us. And yet he's warning us, there's a path that's gonna lead to life and there's some that don't. And adultery, that's a dangerous path. I think the other place that the voice of sensuality is speaking loud at every street corner for us is through pornography. It's through pornography. And so it's fascinating. I read an article in Forbes. You're like, how did you study pornography, Ben? Well, I read it and I just read the articles. Um, <laughs> Forbes magazine in January uh, was talking about now uh, porn websites are putting out statistics on uh, the volume of users. And so I don't want to tell you uh, what the porn site's name is, but one of the biggest... Um, put out its, its numbers and Forbes did an article on it. And the guy that wrote the article is making all these jokes about like, oh, this would be a dream job to do stats for a porn industry. And I think that's real tragic that he thinks that. But he notes that just one porn site, it's the biggest one, but it's just one, averages 81 million visitors a day. 81 million unique visitors a day. 28.5 billion visitors a year. 
That's repeat visitors throughout days. 28.5 billion with 24.7 billion searches performed. If you're wondering what that means, that means 50,000 searches a minute, 800 per second. 595,000 hours of videos are uploaded, uploaded per year. That's 24,811 days of watching. Every five minutes, this one site transmits more data than the entire contents of the New York Public Library's 50 million books. There's enough data transferred daily by this one website to fill the memory of every iPhone currently in use around the world. That's where we are today. Mark Regneris, who does a, a, some really rigorous studies of young people and sex. He's, he's written a book on called Premarital Sex in America. His latest one is called Cheap Sex, and he doesn't really have a dog in the fight. He's just trying to empirically study the culture that we're in. And so he quotes a study of 18 to 23-year-olds, and he found out that 86% of young men report interacting with porn at least once a month, 86%. Um, 31% of women. So it's nowhere near the same for women, but that's still a significant number, 31%, right? And that is a, a powerful percentage of people interacting with that. And let me say this, that the modern mantra of the porn industry is it doesn't hurt anybody. This, this way of sexuality, there's no victims, there's no one hurt by that. But what's interesting is Studies in science are showing us that's really not the case. Uh, Cambridge did a study in 2014 where they studied how pornography triggers the brain in sex addicts, and it says it's the exact same way that drugs trigger the drug addict, that it's built to be uh, habitual and addicting. One of the books I researched about this subject said the fascinating thing about it is that the concern about that level of addiction, the amount of time it takes from people. And she said, we're seeing now the times that people are looking at pornography, they stay consistent and high throughout the work week. She said, this is actually impacting us at an economic level, at the number of people that are looking at porn instead of working. I've dealt with a lot of people who struggle with sex addiction. And I remember one saying, as I look at the damage in my own life, he says, do you know what it was? It wasn't just relational damage. He said, it stole so much of my creativity. He said, I'm a creator. And if you just count the hours, it took a lot of hours of my life away. And he said, one of the greatest things about being free from this addiction for me is I feel like I have my life back. Uh, I'm, a, I'm promoting flourishing in the culture uh, because of this. So it hurts people. This kind of activity, it divides marriages. The American Acad Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers reports that 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornography. It's, it's now a cause in dividing marriages. Eight years ago, they say, and I'll quote them, pornography played almost no role in divorce in this country. So think about that. Just in eight years, that dramatic difference, it's affecting the way we relate to each other. It disrupts courtship. Mark Regneris' book, he talks about that. Prolonged exposure to pornography leads young people to assume sexual exclusivity is unrealistic and to hold cynical attitudes about love, affection, and marriage. That The more exposure to pornography, and here's the thing, you don't even have to look at it. Many of us are just in the wake of it as we even watch fashion choices or women's choices are now being shaped by the porn industry. As we stand in the wake of that, it's affecting the way we treat each other and the way we think if it's even possible 
to have a fulfilling monogamous relationship. Many people think, oh, that's not realistic or possible. That's an idea that's been trained over time through this kind of cynical view of sex, right? And so the reality is it's damaged the dating pool. And the last damage I'll talk about is, I think the saddest one, is that it actually destroys sex. That for many people, prolonged exposure to sensuality online. It's interesting, Aziz Ansari has a book about dating. And in his book, he wanted to kind of contemplate where we are in the world of dating today. And he went to two very different cultures. He went to Japan and he went to Buenos Aires. And he says in Japan, something like 40% of young people indicate no interest in sex. Marriage rates have dropped so low, the government's now subsidizing dating to a degree because, because it's becoming a national concern. And he was trying to figure out what's going on with that. And what's happening there is, is a real decoupling of sex from intimacy. And so it's very common for men to go to cuddling cafes where you can go and pay someone to uh, hug you and pet you and make eye contact and things like that, that there's sex with robots. And there's also uh, a, a real destigmatizing of prostitution. And so there's no incentive to be in a loving relationship with a woman. And so they're seeing marriage rates decrease. On the other side, in Buenos Aires, they said sex is very common. There's a, a lot of sex with people. It's very common to have multiple sexual partners. And he said, but the interesting thing is, as they researched Buenos Aires, he said it was very common to see women crying on the street corner. When you ask them why, people said it's because of men. It's because this casual sexual atmosphere hurts. Uh, we're not made for, to keep saying, I'll give you my body, but not my heart. It's a, it's a disintegrating of us rather than an integrity. And so it was interesting for him to be very candid. I thought a very sexually liberated culture would be life enhancing. He said, what I ran into there was a lot of sadness. He said, and I just couldn't help but think this is going better for some people than others. But what was fascinating for me is he looked at two very different cultures. And in both of them, what he found was loneliness. He found what we see in our culture a lot today, that we've been rated the second loneliest city in America. There's a loneliness because sexuality in our culture today is constantly being pulled away from emotional intimacy. And what I find for so many people is we want the emotional intimacy, right? We want all of it. And God made it that way because he loves us. He made it that way. So what do we do? Let me say a couple things what we do. Number one, I think the proper response is to surround yourself with wise voices, that's what the dad keeps saying. Be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to understanding. Keep discretion. Get yourself around people that will speak good choices to you. Surround yourself with wisdom, wise counselors, and also others uh, that can support you as you make wise choices. It's fascinating for a lot of times if we don't feel good about our sexuality, shame walls us off and isolates us. And for me, what I'm committed to for us is saying, hey, you know what? I don't want a wall of shame because God doesn't want one. And so let's get to a place where we can talk openly about this is where I struggle. This is not working for me. This is what's going wrong with me. And as we do that, it's out in the light that we find healing, that we found life. It's interesting. Patrick Carnes, who's one of the leaders, leading voices on sexual addiction, says that he says addiction's an intimacy disorder. Often people move to sexual addiction because not just a fascination with sex, but a deep wounding with intimacy and emotionally. And what they need is healthy relationships around them. I know for me, when I, like I said, was exposed to pornography very young, it was, it was one of those things that put a lot of shame into my heart, and I was terrified to tell anybody about it. And I remember the first time sitting around with a group of guys, and I'd be like, you know, guys use all these code words like, man, I'm just really struggling lately and with things that make me struggle <laughs> on the inside. And it was funny as guys finally said like, hey, man, I struggle with 
pornography and I don't like the way it's making me feel about myself or feel about women. I don't like what it's doing to my life. It was funny to be in a group of guys where like every other guy was like, me too. And we're like, really? Yes, that's so odd because that's what the stats say. But for some reason, I thought I was the only one and you're not. And it's okay to say I struggle and I need help. And it's a liberating thing to have a group of people do that. It was funny when I led a ministry, a lot of the young guys decided, you know what, as a sign of that, we're just going to be like real forthright about it. So they would just call each other and be like, I looked at pornography. I, I dialed it up on my computer and they'd give each other like all these details. And I'm like, easy chief, like you find, just calibrate it in a way that is honest, but you don't have to yell at them. But, um, Get into a place where you can have the safety of getting wise voices around you, of people that care about you, people who love you. One of the best things for me is to know I have a ring of men above me who love me, who won't, who won't judge me, won't condemn me, but support me. And I have a ring of friends around me. And for many of you, we live in a culture where it's work, 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 work. I'm exhausted and weariness plus temptation often leads to failure. And for many of us, we springboard between those two things and we don't feel happy about our emotional life. And the solution to that is healthy relationships, healthy friendships. Uh, it's interesting. We talked, Donna and I, with a young single girl who's a friend of ours, and people always ask her, how can you be single and not be in an active sexual relationship? And she said, you know, I, I absolutely want that, and I want to get married. She's like, but what I found is as I develop healthy relationships with couples and singles and kids, as I get involved in a church with people of all different walks of life, she said, I find some deep emotional needs met that I'm finding a lot of people are trying to meet romantically that I'm finding in community. So get around people who care about you. And if we can be that for you, we wanna be that. That's the church we wanna be. It's okay to not be okay here. Now we love you too much to let you stay there, but we're gonna love you through it. So get around wise voices. And number two is resist first impulses. He says, son, do not even go near the door of her house. He said, son, sensuality is like a ball rolling down a hill. It's way easier to stop it at the top. But if you're mid-hill and you're like, all right. He's like, that's probably not the best decision, you know? Uh, you got to be wise about this stuff, right? And so resist the first impulses. And I know for me, that's been a healthy habit for myself and for other people I know. I go, where are the places I'm tempted? Let me change those places. For me, I had to realize, like a lot of guys, computers late at night when I'm tired, not really a wise place. And so I counsel a lot of young men that they have their phone next to their bed and are struggling with pornography. I said, Romans says, make no provision for the flesh. This is like going near the door of her house. Having the world wide web right by your head at your most vulnerable time of day maybe isn't the best choice. And they're like, but it's my alarm clock. Like, well, then buy an alarm clock, man. <laughs> You're like an alcoholic pouring a glass of scotch every night and being like, I'm not going to drink you, all right? You tasty little, like, don't do it, you know? I've had friends who literally, they say, you know what? There's parts of town I can't drive to anymore. It's too triggering for me. I had another friend that there was... Uh, like a store he used to go into. And it was, it, for him, it was like part of a ritual. And he was like, I, just, I can't go to that store anymore. And is going to that store sin? No, but he said, it was, just, it was just for me, that's the ball rolling at the top. And I realized I can't do that. Just can't do it, you know? 
we were talking about it just the other night, Don and I, uh, we were at this conference and it was a women's conference. And so they're like, we're all going out tonight. And I was like, I'm oh, maybe not because that's weird. So I was like, I'm just going to go back to the room. And I was like, dude, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. I'm going to turn on a movie. And so I was like, I'm just going to turn on a movie. And instantly it was this husband and wife talking about the Bible. And she's like, anyway, so ah, takes her shirt off. And I'm like, no. And so I like turned it off because I'm like, I'm not going to speak to a room full of women and be like, so I was looking at a naked woman who's not my wife last night. I was like, that feels bad. So let me turn this off. And I was like, I felt good about resisting the first impulse and telling my wife, hey, uh, um, I saw that and I didn't want to entertain that and turned it off. But when I woke up the next morning, I was like, you know what? I was really innocent in that moment. I feel good about the innocence of that moment. But then I realized, but I wasn't real wise. Sick, weary, tired, alone, cable, probably not a good combo because the enemy would love to make me feel bad about myself before I preach the word of God. So I'm innocent, but I wasn't wise, right? I'm a fool. Good news is all the taglines in the book of Proverbs you can get rid of. So I'm like, I'm a fool, I repent, not a fool. I'm on the road to wisdom because uh, I'm walking, right? So you resist the first impulses. Whatever that is for you, do it. Some of you, it might be introducing, I've told this story before, better things into those moments. For me as a young college student, it was the Chronicles of Narnia late at night. I realized that was helpful for me. Yeah, because I'm not really attracted to lions and uh, little mice, but it was just a way to think about something else. And so I realized as a 20-year-old, the Puritans used to say it. How do you replace, how do you dislodge a beautiful thing from the human heart? You replace it with a more beautiful thing. And so I thought, I don't need to sit there and be like, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust. I just sit there and I'm going to replace it with something else. I'm going to have story time every night. And I would read about little Reaper Cheap and I'm like, I want to be just like you. <laughs> and I'd be like, what's going to happen next? I really shouldn't, but I must. No, wait till tomorrow. And I would just dream about wonderful things, right? <laughs> Last thing I would say is, he says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. I love that. If some of you were like, why did he suddenly shift to talking about drinking water? Sweet child. Um, <laughs> he's not talking about drinking water. He's talking about, son, your sexual impulses are good but there's places to take them that aren't gonna be best for you. They're, they're gonna be disintegrating for you. What you wanna do, son, is you wanna get in a healthy community. You wanna meet somebody that you love their mind, you love their heart, you whether love they think, and you care about how they feel. And then before God and your friends, you say, I choose you. And she's gonna say, I choose you. And in that safety, you two go crazy, right? Y'all have a great time. You know, like, let her be a lady out on the streets and a freak in the bed, right? I mean. <laughs> Ludacris just got that from the book of Proverbs, you know? I mean, that's all he's doing. So take it from the prophet Luda. Just drink. It's a command. But just do it from your own cistern, right? And then he says, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, right? Rejoice. Have fun, son. The Bible's not trying to hold something back from you. It's trying to give you the best, right? That's, that's what it's doing. And let me close with this. Uh, before you drink from the well of sexual fulfillment, uh, you need to drink from the well of spiritual fulfillment. I mean, John chapter four, Jesus sits by the well with a woman that had had a, a broken relational past and a broken sexual past. And when he sat with her, he didn't shame her. He didn't wag his finger because that's not what Jesus does. He sits and he said, if you knew who was talking to you, 
He said, I'd give you water that'd make you never thirst again. And she said, are you talking about this well? Are you better than this well? And he says, go get your husband. She said, I don't have one. He said, I know, you've had five. He said, and now you're living with a guy you're not married to. And she tries to pivot to a safer conversation. Well, let's talk about theology and politics. Well, what do you think about the prophets say this mountain and that? He's like, da, 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 this mountain, that. Let's talk about your life, right? I'm talking to you about you. And he's like, what he says to her is not shame on you. Here's five happy steps to a better marriage. What he says is, if you knew who's talking to you, I'd give you water that wouldn't just satisfy your thirst. It would be a fountain welling up into life, right? What's beautiful about Jesus is he's going to give it to her anyway. What he's telling her is, sweet daughter, you've been looking to these men to give you what only I can. Get a relationship with God right before you get a relationship with a guy or a girl right. And then when you enter that relationship, you'll be a fountain and not a drain. And may that fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. He says, that's what he wants to do. So come to me first and let me heal you. Come to me and let me heal your soul. And I love it because he didn't shame her at all. In fact, he liberated her to the point that the town she had been embarrassed to go into, she was drawing water alone, she marches into triumphantly and said, y'all gotta meet this guy. He just told me everything I ever did, which a few minutes ago might have sounded like a scary proposition for her. Now it sounds like liberty. He knew everything I ever did and he loved me anyway. He knew about all of it. He knew about husband three and that one was real crazy. He knew about all of it and he offered me life. He offered me an embrace. He offered me love. That's the gospel. That's Jesus. That's who he is. So wherever you are in this house today, I want you to know, whether you agree with the book of Proverbs or me or anything about that, I want you to know the heavens smile on you today. God loves you today. He wants what's best for you today, and we do too. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be uplifting to others, then be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.